welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bro, and I also lead Ruse's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities. You can find On the Cusp wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit ruse.org slash modern deterrence. Many thanks to Will Stavs Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, lots of countries are discussing national service, not the old kind where every man had to serve, because that model had major challenges even during the Cold War, and most armed forces today no longer need massive conscript armies. Plus, not everybody is suited for military service. What countries are looking at, and in some cases introducing, is very different. In the United States, Democratic and Republican senators have just introduced the CORE Act, which will create, if passed, will create a service program where Americans can work for the community in areas including public health and emergency logistics. France has a new national service program that teaches French teenagers the basics of military service, but it's really designed to help them develop a stronger sense of citizenhood. And earlier this summer, Germany introduced something called My Year for Germany, where young people get to spend half a year training with their armed forces and then train and serve in homeland protection in their home regions. The best thing about that program is it's selective. And selectivity is the model that Norway uses with great success. Since the end of the Cold War, it has reduced the number of teenagers called up for military service to about seven to 8,000 each year. When only men were called up, that meant that fewer than one-third of 19-year-olds were selected. Then in 2016, Norway made military service gender neutral. That means that today, less than one-sixth of all Norwegian 19-year-olds are selected for military service. But that doesn't mean that it functions seamlessly. And the person who knows more than anybody else about the sociological aspect of military service, uh, how the soldiers interact with one another, how they function, while they do military service, is Nina Hellum, who is a social anthropologist at the FFI, Norway's Defence Research Agency, and has specialised for many years in studying how soldiers function on the ground, especially those uh, doing their military service. And Nina, you have a new report out. Can you tell us what it is about? Oh, well, thank you for letting me attend this as well. Thank you. Uh, well, my latest report is coming out uh, soon, and it's about motivation and uh, recruitment of Norwegian soldiers for conscript service and how they are met and what expectations they have when they come into service and how that affects them during the service. Uh, are they motivated for service after the conscript period or not? So that is the main, the main topic of it. And to everybody listening, the report will be out very soon. It will be Norwegian, but with an English summary. So this is really your chance to hear uh, in detail what it is about, unless you speak and read Norwegian. And the report is so interesting because motivation is something that many countries are concerned about or think about when they when they contemplate introducing national service of some kind, even the selective kind, because it's one thing selecting the best and brightest, which is what Norway does, but it's another thing to keep them motivated uh, throughout their service. And then, of course, another objective of, of having them is to make some of them interested in, in the armed forces as a, as a lifelong career. So, Nina, what are your findings in the report? What makes soldiers motivated, uh, specifically in this case, those selected for national service? Well, I think, as you mentioned, 
The Norwegian military, they don't need as many uh, soldiers as they used to on the ground. And so every year conscripts from a cohort about 60,000, only about seven or 8,000 are recruited into the military, uh, selected into the military, I would say. And um, many of the recruits today, they, they write in, uh, on forehand in a form. They have to answer a lot of questions before they are enrolled. And uh, many of them, they write that they are motivated for service. But also, uh, seeing as Norwegian uh, armed forces can actually, they, have, they can choose and pick as much as they want, and having a gender-neutral conscription, they can also, they can choose between both uh, men and women. Uh, so they can choose between all, the whole cohort. And they do recruit and, and, uh, and select uh, the few who are, they normally have very good physique. They do very well in, in physical tests and sports tests and also intelligence tests and mental tests and stuff. In other words, if I may interrupt, for those who are not familiar with the Norwegian model, in order to be selected for military service in Norway, you have to be both very bright and very fit. Well, it seems to be now, yes. It, it didn't used to be like that because then they wanted men people, but now they, they get to choose uh, and they choose, well, some of the brightest and the most fit people amongst the youth, yes. When they're about 18 or 19, they're chosen in and enrolled. And many of these... Well, my finding says is many of these have already decided, they already kind of, they've been accepted into different kinds of studies, like maybe medicine or psychology, which are high status educations or engineers, maybe. So they, they look upon this year as uh, they do say yes to, to the conscription service and they go in and they are quite excited about it. It's a way of realizing themselves and getting to the nature, trying, you know, testing their boundaries and and all of those kind of things. And then after that, their kind of, their mind is, their minds are set to go back to civilian education and universities. And these are, well, just a small portion of them are really elite, but it's, it's kind of, you know, Norwegian's finest, I would say, that get into this conscript service. Many of them are, and they are motivated and um, for service, but mostly for that year. So uh, the challenge is actually how to get the best of the best to actually stay within the military and get further education in the military or to pursue a career in the military. And if I can interrupt, Nina, I think this is so interesting and it's, uh, it's the paradox of successful military service where what's demonstrated by Norway, if you make it so attractive that the ones who are the best and brightest and who are selected that they also want to serve, then you also get uh, as a result the dilemma that they are, because they are, they are the top of the chart, they also have very good civilian opportunities afterwards. I'm not saying that only people only stay on the, in the military if they don't have any yes. other options, yes. but ordinarily the, the reality in Norway is that because these young people who, because they are fit and bright, have been selected for military service. They all, because they are top achievers, they also have the, all these other uh, opportunities after military service, which makes them perhaps less likely to stay on for a full-time military career. Yes, and, and many of them, they do quite an excellent uh, conscription period. The results are very good normally in, in the conscription period. So they would be very eligible and, and very very good candidates for further education and career in, in the Norwegian military. And, and some of them do go on, I have to say. Of course, some of them do go, get on. And 
and also officers and, and uh, non-commissioned officers, they are doing all they can to uh, motivate uh, and promote further education and a career for a lot of these candidates in the in the, of these conscripts. So, but still, uh, many of the ones I interviewed and I stayed with, they kind of expressed that this is a year that they, it looks very good on your resume or CV. Mm-hmm. It's career enhancing. It's very good to have been, you know, that one year in the, in the conscript period in the military. So it's, it's a very good career-wise to have been that one year and do very well and then go back to the civil society and do some civil education and career there. And so the challenge for the armed forces, I mean, this is a, a luck problem. I, I can't think of any other country that has this problem apart from perhaps Sweden, that is, which is starting a, a, has, has started a similar, likewise, gender neutral. But, but the problem for the armed forces then is to convince these top achievers that it gets in as conscripts to convince them to stay on, motivate them to stay on. Yes, well, and I think there are a lot of motivated people anyway, but I think instead of just focusing on results, just focusing on what kind of people they are and will they fit into the military way of life, because it is a lifestyle. Uh, many of the military personnel I've, I've been interviewing over the years, they, they express that this is like a total institution. So life and, well, work and, and leisure time is, you know, more of the same. Uh, and they go over into they go into each other, and, and so being in, being in military takes over your life, kind of. So you have to want to fit into that world because it's a very special culture and it's a very special line of work. And I think many, also many of the, of the conscripts will see that, and and also talk to people who who thought in the beginning, as because they didn't want to have a career or or pursue anything in in the military, but after conscript period, they might want to do anything, might want to stay in the military because they really enjoyed the culture, uh, the environment, uh, the people there, the tasks, the challenges. So I also see that, but I think the challenge is when you, like when the Norwegian military only enrolls, you know, top achievers. Problem is they have so many other opportunities that it's very hard for the military to compete with that. And I think, yeah, I haven't written that maybe in the, in the report. But I think one other thing is actually salary. And uh, when you cut budgets and stuff, these things matter to people. In my report, I also write that uh, some of the the soldiers here, the recruits, they they state that the information flow is not as good as they were hoping for. Uh, they many of them didn't know what kind of opportunities they had within the military system when it comes to education and career wise. Uh, they didn't know what kind of opportunities they had uh, before they came into the military. And also, even though there's a lot of information here and there, it's very difficult to find the uh, concrete aspects of it. So they don't know, like, uh, if they want to be something or... It's, it's very hard to apply for something you don't know exists. So, and the military system is a very large and complicated one. So that is also something that could be worked on in, in the Norwegian military system, how to simplify information, but <laughs> at the same time show uh, all the opportunities to candidates, even before they go into the military, but also especially when they are in the conscript period. So Nina, you wrote a fascinating report a couple of years ago about uh, an experimental Norwegian battalion or regiment, um, an air defense battalion, where 
they decided to test how male and female uh, soldiers interact by having a 50-50 division. And um, as is the case with all parts of the Norwegian Armed Forces, the female uh, and male soldiers, uh, there was absolutely no difference between them. They shared the same bedrooms, did everything together. And I found the report absolutely fascinating, as I mentioned. And so, first of all, can you tell our listeners what you found out? And you found out by essentially living with the soldiers there in the barracks. And second of all, can you tell us what has happened in the time since that report? Did they keep the uh, battalion in that setup and have any other battalions or parts of the Norwegian Armed Forces adopted any of your findings or, or what that battalion did? So uh, I went to this air battalion three, four times and stayed with the, the conscripts. And it was it was for two years. So I followed different cohorts, followed them for two years. And uh, the experiment was that the soldiers were 50% men and 50% women. And a lot of people anticipated that it would be, and especially since they were living together, staying in rooms together. Uh, well, sharing, there was gender-neutral gender rooms, just that they were sharing rooms, women and men, in the barracks. And a lot of people expected to be a lot of drama and a lot of maybe sexual encounters or maybe harassment or bullying or whatever. But my findings show that it worked really well. The, uh, the men and women living together and working together as soldiers, it enhanced their respect for each other. They might not be best friends, that didn't matter, but at least they, they saw each other in every kind of situation. They saw each other work hard and, without, you know, sometimes without sleep, sleep deprived and uh, food deprived, maybe starving. They, they saw each other in, in quite difficult circumstances and got a lot of respect for each other and how they deal, dealt with that. And also my, uh, my informants or well, the conscripts at that stu- those studies also said that it didn't really matter whether you were a man or a woman. What was important was that you were a good soldier. And a good soldier is not defined by gender, uh, was kind of the answer I got. And seeing as they lived together, they uh, also, they weren't very mysterious towards each other anymore. Like girls weren't mysterious to the boys and vice versa. They got more natural relationships. It wasn't the first time uh, they had gender mixed rooms in Norway. I think the first was in about 2006, 2008, something like that. We had a we had a battalion with gender mixed rooms up in the north, and that worked quite well. So I think the army was uh, was the one starting with it, and then the navy and the and uh, the air uh, battalions also uh, tried it. But after this report, I went around and got a lot of questions, maybe from some commanders were they were wondering, oh, what do you think? Shall we have gender mixed rooms or barracks? And I, I just had to say that I don't know. There's many there's there's a lot of things that made it work at Erlama in this in my study. There are also studies from one of my colleagues, Nina Rones, which suggests that uh, separating the genders can also be successful. But all of my work through all the years it seems to me like gender, gender mixing rooms in Norway seems to be very successful. Uh, there will be ups and downs with uh, pros and cons for most things. And I think the commanders have, you know, decide for themselves, will it work here? And they can try different things and see what works. But I think generally, I think it works. But also because in Norway, which is a 
not relatively gender-neutral country, if you can say it like that. It's quite emancipated and um, young men and women, they do expect to be, they have an expectation of being treated equally or being seen as equally worth, but not to that extent that they are the same. And that was the, the finding I also got from my study with a 50-50% gender mixed rooms and gender mixed battalion is that they didn't say that there are no differences between men and women. They only said that these differences do not matter when it comes to being a good soldier. And they also said, well, sometimes being a woman, sometimes I can do this better than this one who's a man. So they were acknowledging differences, but saying that they didn't matter very much. And if they did, it was positive. And I think bringing that knowledge on further when I've been around and talking about this, I think especially commanders and leaders, they've taken that a bit to them. And I see now it's it's uh, more natural to have gender mixed rooms. I think that's more of a norm now in Norway, to have gender mixed rooms in military barracks uh, than before. So Nina, coming back to your findings from, from your new report that, uh, as I mentioned, is about to come out. What is it that you're recommending to the Norwegian Armed Forces and in, 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 uh, how they can motivate conscripts? I hate saying conscript because it sounds like somebody who has been commanded into uh, a barracks, which is really not the case in Norway, but in how they can motivate these young men and women who are selected for, for military service. Well, I try to be, seeing as it is, uh, it's a study of just a few few informants. It's, it's not a very big survey or something. I try to be a bit careful about telling people what to do based on my findings. However, uh, there are some things that my informants tell me and tell us that I think we should listen to and think about well, what they say. Is it a supply? Does this apply to other parts of the military as well? And one of the things which I mentioned earlier is that uh, information. A lot of the conscript or recruits, they said that they didn't have a lot of information, didn't find any information. There's a lot of information online as well, but they couldn't kind of navigate uh, in all the information about what kind of opportunities they had when it comes to a further education and uh, a pursuit of a military career after the conscript period is over. Most of them didn't know anything about their possibilities, opportunities for what they can do after the conscript period before they started, uh, before they were enrolled. Uh, and so many of them also complained a bit about uh, a lot of the information being confusing. They didn't know exactly how to uh, look for opportunities because they, how, how to look for things you don't even know is there. That was what they, many of them said during their uh, recruitment period. And then I also interviewed people after they've been in the conscript period for several months, going a bit towards the end there. And, um, and then some of them actually said that their uh, officers and leaders had actually helped them so much about opening up a new world of information for them and telling them about opportunities they had. So now it was much easier for them to do something to go on or not. Uh, and then others were a bit disappointed because they thought there were more opportunities, and then they, when they come out in the in the in the after recruitment period, they are going to another place and to their real conscript period and their work there. And some of them also said they were a bit disappointed because it wasn't what they thought it would be, and they thought it would be much more exciting than it was. And so that also uh, the nature of uh, of their tasks and of their service also affects 
you know, motivation. Are they motivated for further service or not? If they are happy and, and uh, in what they're doing, they might, it's, they're more eligible to be motivated for further service. So this is, I think, the, the, the dilemma of military service anywhere, even if it's highly selective like, like Norway. The reality is that if you are a, a regular soldier, which you are when you, you start out, you do boring things. And it doesn't matter how uh, attractive and, and selective the service itself is, you will have to do boring tasks. So I think that the dilemma in the, with a hugely successful program like this and selective, hugely selective program like this is that you get the best and the brightest, but they sort of expect something <laughs> equally or something commensurate with, with their own qualifications, right? And, and so there is a bigger potential for them to be disappointed, maybe. Is that, is that right? Well, I think you've got a good point there. And I think uh, some of the people were very disappointed because, as you said, these are people who are high achievers. Many of them are high achievers and they're very used to being talented and, and to achieve much and to work hard, actually. So for them to just stand outside uh, barracks with a, with a gun for 24 hours is very boring and they want to do much more of at least if it's going to be a career. The one thing I was uh, quite astonished by, which was very interesting, because I've written about this before, how like boring tasks can actually be demotivating. And especially, you know, standing guard is one of those uh, services which are uh, seen as quite boring and uninteresting. But there was one of the one of the non-commissioned officers in in the unit I was following. She was very enthusiastic, and she enthusiastically she told her soldiers about her rise and shine in, in the being a guard soldier. Then, and she said, "It's it's uh, it's so easy to to do a career there." She said, and she was going off to school now in the military to do to pursue a more officer career and everything so she was very happy about that and she told them about all the possibilities you can have you don't just have to stand there and be a guard but you can apply for this and that and so she was very enthusiastic and and I'm sure she motivated several people so I think having especially well not not high leaders but leaders on the ground that they are enthusiastic and uh that they are able to motivate, I think it's very important. She was a very, very important figure, I think, for many of these soldiers. Yes, and, and uh, it's important to remember also, for those of us who haven't done military service, which is almost every single one of us, is that there are several types of, of people doing military service at the same time. So you have the complete beginners, but then you have the ones who have been in for a while who uh, have positions of more responsibility. And, and as you say, they can motivate others. Yes. And also one thing I found very interesting was that this is also like, it's a younger generation. It's a generation not expert. Is it Y, Z? I'm not sure. It's, it's, uh, it's not the same generations as we are. And um, they are very individual, individualistic, and they're very used to being seen and heard and that that is important. And I noticed that because none of them would kind of be happy about being one in the crowd. They were very into being seen and, and acknowledged as who they are as individuals. And uh, several of them said that, well, I like that leader because he or she sees me or, or says hi or maybe something like that. And then I don't like that very much because she never says hi or something like that. So these things were quite important. And for me, I was interviewing all of them and there was just the two of us in a room by ourselves. And one of them said that, oh, this feels like uh, I'm in therapy. It's wonderful because they get to sit there and tell everything about them. So I'm interested in them. 
interested in them and what they have to say and their meanings and thoughts and feelings. And um, there was no shortage of people who wanted to be interviewed to say it like that. And it was very interesting to see what it meant for them to be seen and acknowledged. And I think that is something that the military has to acknowledge as well, that um, if you want to motivate them, you have to kind of back them up personally, because that's individually, that is what they kind of crave, I think. Good point. Nina, I want to look at Norwegian military country from a larger perspective for a moment, because Norway has been innovating uh, quite a bit in recent years. And People may say, oh, it's just Norway. They can afford to innovate because they're a wealthy country and, and there are people happy to serve in the armed forces. But there are some really interesting experiments, not just the gender-neutral military service, which was the first in the world after Israel's, I believe. And by the way, it's also worth mentioning that Norway was the first country to admit women to all parts of the armed forces back in 1988, along with Israel. But then also the 50-50 air defense battalion. And then another thing, I think is absolutely fascinating and I'd love to hear your thoughts about, which is the all-female special forces unit. And it's worth uh, mentioning it because it was created by General Eric Christofferson, who has just taken over as Norway's chief of defense. And he's a former special forces officer and uh, in that capacity created uh, the all-female special forces unit, uh, not as any sort of political statement, but as an uh, operational necessity because he and, and other Norwegian special forces officers had served in Afghanistan and uh, in the counterinsurgency if you don't have a special forces, if you don't have female special forces officers in, well, female uh, and male special forces officers, you're, you're just limited in what you can do. So Norway, under, uh, I think it was Colonel then, Colonel Christofferson created this all-female special forces unit. And I remember writing about it at the time, and it, it, the story went viral simply because it's such a cool thing to do. Can you tell us uh, how, about how this uh, special forces unit has done, the Jägertruppen has done in the few years since it was created? Uh, well, I haven't done research on that unit myself, but I have two colleagues, Nina Rones and Frank Brunt-Anstedder. They have done research on that unit, so I'm, I'm sure they could tell you in detail much more about it. What I can say is I'm not sure if that unit still exists. Uh, it went on for quite a lot longer than it was supposed to. And uh, especially it was created, like you said, by Eric Christofferson, who I think he... Uh, started working yesterday I think as our new leader <laughs> but uh, and it was supposed to especially there was a gap in urban reconnaissance I think that was the biggest gap so they needed uh, especially female soldiers to urban reconnaissance so that is one of the main things they were trained for but these women who applied and got into that little unit because we were a small unit they were also quite special. They were extremely fit and smart and, you know, elitist uh, soldiers, very, very good. So it was also a very special group. And many of them, as my colleague Nina Rones stated, was that they enjoyed being an uh, all-female group and they enjoyed being not uh, a gender-mixed group because they couldn't then, then they could uh, compete within their own gender. So many women have said that they... Well, female soldiers said that it's it's hard to be the only one. You, you're always last because you're always competing with just men. So even though how well you do and you might be really good, you will always be the last one, especially when it comes to special soldiers. So many of these women said that they really enjoyed being an all-female unit. That said, 
I'm not sure if you can compare that completely to the units I've been uh, studying because they have not been elite soldiers. They are more conscript, normal conscript soldiers. They are both conscript, conscription. Also, the Jägertroppen, uh, the Norwegian female unit, was also a conscript unit, but still they were selected much more thoroughly and much harder select- selection than, than most of the units I've been in. So I think the culture and, and the, um, the group is, is, um, is quite diverse in, in the other groups I've been studying. So if we can summarize all of this, because there's many different strands of, of Norwegian innovation, but, but your particular strand is military service and, and what motivates the soldiers and how they interact with one another and how they are motivated to potentially stay on within the armed forces. And you say you, you don't provide recommendations to the government, you just observe. By the way, can you tell us what, what it looks like when you observe? Can you tell us just very briefly uh, how you conduct your anthropological studies with the soldiers? I, I know you stay with them in the barracks. Yes, I would first like to stress that I do come with recommendations. I do recommend things sometimes, but I'm quite careful about being too blunt about it. But I do recommend certain steps as well. We always, we, normally we do that. Uh, I do too. Yes, so being a social anthropologist, my method is uh, participant observation and uh, qualitative interviews. So that will, that means that I go to military units, uh, and study them for some topic and if it's a gender topic or it might be motivation or recruitment or or different topics within the military when it comes to personnel and and soldiers so i go normally and i i stay amongst um, the conscripts this last field work i stayed there for one week august last year and one week in september at the barracks same well it wasn't a gender mixed room before i came I stayed there with the same five young men for both those weeks and um, had no problem with that. And it's very interesting to see how they are interested in what I want them, what I'm curious at. So they are curious at uh, me and I'm curious at them. And so it's, it's, um, it's very interesting. And then I, I stay with them in the barracks and I eat with them and, uh, well, I don't always march with them, I, I'm, and I'm not in uniform. I'm always a civilian, so it's it's uh, it's clear that I'm not one of them. Which it is, of course, I could be their grandma, but it's still I'm not one of them. You know, I don't wear military clothes or anything insignia or something. So it's very important to have that distinction because I'm not a spy. <laughs> I'm there to do research, and it's it's important that they're aware of I'm there to do research on them. So, and they have to accept me being there. So if they don't want me to be there, I'll go somewhere else. I also conduct interviews, uh, which I tape and transcribe, and I use a lot of quotes in my reports. So it's important that my informants, the soldiers, the conscripts, actually it's their voice that is being heard and not mine. So I try to present their voices and, uh, I follow them around and do a lot of things that they do. I've been into the gas shed and tried to breathe gas. I've been to the mud pit. So I try to do those things to feel on my body how it is to do the same things as they do. So to be better able to describe it. And also sometimes it, it gives a lot of respect from the other soldiers that I'm also trying the same to live a bit like them than not just coming in and staying at a fancy hotel and then walking out again. 
I don't know if that would suffice. <laughs> there might be other aspects I didn't mention, Elizabeth. Yes, it does suffice. And, and, and then to, to uh, wrap it up, which is the, the most important part, your, your findings about in, in this most recent study about uh, motivating the uh, recruits, in, in this case, the, the national service, uh, military service of recruits. And I think it's, it's extremely relevant, not just to Norway, but to other countries, uh, because so many countries are, are thinking about national service and how to set it up. And, and uh, one aspect that many countries are, are curious or concerned about is the sort of connection between national service and, and the armed forces. Will the armed forces be able to benefit from national service in, in uh, essentially getting a, a wider intake of soldiers and officers into the armed forces? Or will it just be a year where people spend training with them and then they go back to, to what they were planning to do before? So what are your findings and recommendations? Well, I think uh, there's some, some of my findings I think uh, it's important to think about, and that is uh, the individualistic approach that my informants had. They wanted to be seen and heard and acknowledged as persons, not just uh, a soldier in the crowd. So to uh, acknowledge that and actually to promote and, and motivate each and every one in their own individualistic way, which is more possible now because you have fewer soldiers, at least in Norway, fewer soldiers. So that is possible to do much more than when there were much, uh, much more soldiers, many more soldiers. And also there's a question of, well, pay actually, like money and uh, that you get some extra funding for something uh, that you, you feel that you're being taken care of in the organization, that the organization is actually providing for opportunities for like maybe more education courses you can learn stuff that you get maybe some 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 people are very they want to be deployed that is important and also that you have good rules and regulations for taking care of people's family and children that you can commute if you have to do that that you have to a nice place to live that they accommodate you in such such ways. I think that is also important for my informants, not just the ones from this this last study, but also from, from earlier studies I've seen that. And also not being a social anthropologist, I also have to mention culture. The military culture is very important for the people. Like I said before, like Hoffman said, it's a total institution. So what you do on your spare time and what you do when you're working might go very much hand in hand. It's a lifestyle more than a job, many people tell me. And it's a very distinct culture. And um, many of the military personnel I've talked to, they mentioned that being part of a culture that takes care of you, uh, where you meet people who are interested in the same things that you are, is very important to them. They feel like a very a part of a very uh, good society within the society. So that might be important to them too. So if you can, if the environment is is uh, bad, then people will leave. If you are able to take care of of your employees uh, and your personnel in a good way. Also, if you, as well, this is a leadership uh, issue, of course, so if the leaders are able to help in making a very good culture that people are taking care of each other and you feel like a, a, a tight unit working for the same goal, that of course, as most working places, that would be very important. 
Lots of findings there from Nina Hillam, a social anthropologist at the FFI, the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment. Apologies for calling it an agency earlier. It's the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment. And those findings, I think, in fact, I know will be consulted by people in Norway and beyond uh, because we are all, many countries are looking to Norway to see how it perfects its uh, national service simply because it's it's a model that other countries are looking at and it's not just an aspect of bringing the people in it's uh, it's it's a matter of motivating them while they are there it will benefit them and it will benefit the country so thank you again nina our producer is tom Ascot, and we'll be back very soon with another episode see you on the cusp